Well, also good to be with you this evening and to be opening the Word of God with you. Um, before we do that, let me, let, me, let me pray and ask the Lord's kindness upon our time tonight. Father, we come to you always humbled that you have spoken to us, that you give to us your mind on all things and even your mind on what will unfold in the end, that we may have confidence and encouragement that you are upon your throne, and that doesn't change. No matter what we see in this life, no matter what we experience. So, Father, gird up our hearts this evening. Show us your glory. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, admonish the unruly. Save the lost, Father. Edify your children, we pray, all for your glory's sake. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. As you probably know, that's where we'll be for this evening. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to have to just jump right in here and maybe give a, a little bit, just to give a little bit of review as to where we are in the context of our study. You remember, based on what Jesus tells John to write down in chapter 1, verse 19, we have been saying that this book of Revelation can be divided into three parts. Three parts. You remember, first, the things which John has seen in his vision of Christ, which we looked at in chapter 1. The second part, we also finished, uh, includes the things which are, which we looked at and finished recently, um, as recently as two studies ago, uh, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are that are recorded in these letters to the seven churches that existed in John's day. And then the third and final section is where we find ourselves having just begun. We began this last section last time. Danny kicked us off. The beginning in chapter 4, and we now begin to see John's recording of the things which will take place after. These are future events yet to come revealed to the apostle and recorded from chapter 4 onward. And so we're in chapter 5. Danny kicked us off last time this Longest section. You remember this longest section, the things which are to come, begins where all things begin. The very throne room of Almighty God. That is where these events unfold. This is appropriately where all that we will read of in the following chapters, in the unfolding of these last days, this is where it emanates from, the throne room of God. Notice again, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, just to establish our setting and get our bearings again, because as Danny said last time, these really two chapters to be taken together, after these things John writes, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I 
had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. This is the same setting for our passage then tonight. But even before we look at chapter 5, we have to ask, why does God take John into heaven to give him this vision of things to come? Ever ask that? Ever wonder that? Why not just leave him here on earth to experience that vision and all that is about to happen? Why this vision of a throne room? Because John, like you and I, need encouragement, perhaps, like I prayed. We need encouragement. We need to be reassured that in the midst of all of this, and even in light of what he's about to see, that God is still in control. That he is the Lord of history. John, we could say, needed to be reminded at this point in his revelation that God was still sovereign over the weaknesses of his church, chapters 2 and 3. That God was still sovereign over what horrors he was about to witness that was coming upon the earth. I like what Leon Morris says when he summarizes the reason why we have chapters 4 and 5. He says this, chapters... Four and five proclaim in vivid and confident terms the world's destiny is not under the control of some blind fate. Do you talk to some people who believe that sometimes? He says, we are all in the hands of a loving Father and a Savior who died for us. This is why We have these chapters. This is why John is taken up into the very heart of heaven and given this vision. And I love that God does this. But think about this. If we only had chapter 4, it would certainly be reason enough for us to worship God, as we saw last time, as what? As the sovereign creator, right? That was the focus, that was the focal point of chapter 4, as Danny showed us last time. But I love that in God's infinite wisdom, He gives us another chapter. Indeed, many more chapters, but especially that He gives us chapter 5. Because to be honest, there is, there is an apocalyptic elephant left in the room if you just stop after chapter 4. Because even though God is the creator, think about your experience here in his world. Everybody knows that something went desperately wrong with his creation. Something happened in Genesis 3 that we all feel the effects of every day. The Bible says that even creation itself feels this. In Romans chapter 8, the whole creation, what? Groans. Look, you know this experientially, don't you? Every ache, 
your bones. Reminds you of it. Every sickness, every diagnosis, every death, every sense of loss, every broken relationship, every tear, every grief, every pain, emotional, physical, relational. What what about when you turn on the TV? The tragic and alarming events of the news remind us of this. Every natural disaster, every injustice, every, every abortion, every violation of the dignity of human life, every flaunting of what, off, what, what, what offends God by those who don't fear Him. You know, this, this universe begs to be restored. And you and I as Christians know all the more that it must be restored for the vindication of God's holy name. Sin must be dealt with. Death must be crushed. The curse must be reversed. Satan must be defeated. All that is wrong in this world must be made right. And we long for it, don't we? Do you? I do. It's not enough that we know that God is the creator of all things. Look, as necessary and as critical as a truth, that is. And we worship him for it. But like John, we need also to know that God is the redeemer of all things, don't we? That one day he will make right all that is wrong in this world. Beloved, that is why we have Revelation chapter 5. And so here's, here's how we're just going to walk through this, its contents this evening. I've got an outline for you. Now, we're really going to just follow John's eyes in this narrative. We're going to see, along with him, four dramatic heavenly scenes that unfold here before him. Each scene beginning with the words, and I saw. Verse 1, and I saw. Verse 2, and I saw. Verse 6, and I saw. Verse 11, and I saw. Or some translated, then I looked. But it's the same phrase. So you can go ahead and put that outline up there. Notice the first scene here then. Let's just walk through this. The first scene here that is introduced to us in verse 1 We'll just call it the scene of the sealed scroll. Look at verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Now you remember from last time, the moment that John is pulled up into this heavenly throne room, his eyes behold not only this throne, but even more importantly, he sees and he beholds almost immediately 
God himself, the one sitting upon this throne. You think John's vision is fixated upon God the Father, immediately seated in the position of sovereign authority. The one whom John at one point wrote about in John 1.18 when he said, No one has seen God at any time. Now, John sees Him. The Creator of all things. The Almighty One who was and who is and who is to come. Whom Daniel, in a similar parallel vision actually in Daniel chapter 7, calls the Ancient of Days. I like that title. This is God the Father. But now here in chapter 5, here in chapter 5, the text tells us that John, as John's eyes, think about it, begin to focus. As, as he begins to get his bearings, having just been pulled up into heaven and come face to face with the glory of his creator, I mean, that, that must have been discombobulating, right? Verse 1 says, John notices that there is, there, there's actually something in the Father's hand. God is holding something. He's holding it in His right hand. And as he looks more closely, John notices that it is a book of some kind. Perhaps we could say that at the center of this seen in heaven is a book. And Danny rejoices. But it's not, it's not a banner of truth volume. Technically, this is more like a scroll because they didn't, they didn't have books the way we have books today with bindings and everything. No, back then, we, they, they wrote on scrolls, either made of pieces of papyrus that were pressed together and then rolled out or written on some kind of animal hide. The text doesn't tell us here. All we are told in this description of this particular scroll is that, one, it has writing, did you notice, on both the inside and on the outside, both on the inside and the back of it. So it's double-sided. It's a double-sided scroll. And two, we notice also that it is a scroll that is sealed up with seven seals. Now, the question is, what is this scroll? And what does it represent? What does it signify? Well, there are so many different views on this, but for the sake of time, I'll give you the right one. In in Roman culture, at the time of John's writing, and even before that, stretching back to an example, you can study it on your own, that you can read of in uh, Jeremiah 32, official deeds or titles to property, or contracts were actually written on scrolls just like this one, resembling the features of the one described here by John. Not only were they sealed, these contracts, titles, deeds, not only were they sealed seven times, each time with a different witness, there was was also usually a brief summary of its contents 
on the back or the outside of the scroll so that even when it was rolled up, you think, picture this, even when it was rolled up and then sealed to ensure that no one could tamper with its contents, you could still know generally uh, on the outside there which deed or title or contract you were handling. And so this imagery fits perfectly with the appearance of this scroll that the Father is holding. But what might we conclude then about its contents? What is this title deed for? Well, I think it's also helpful to note that in the Old Testament, in, in, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, if you're taking notes, in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 11, just to give you two examples Scrolls of prophecy about future events were sealed until the right time came for them to be enacted or put into effect. And that's precisely, look, at what happens then if you keep reading in Revelation with this scroll in the next three chapters. Go and read, well, don't. I mean, well, you can go and read, but next time, Carrie's going to begin this section, chapter 6, seven and eight, we read of this very thing happening with this very scroll. The seals of this scroll are successively broken. Chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, verse 12, and chapter 8, verse 1, all seven of them. And each time that happens, John sees something new. Each time the next seal is broken, God enacts this next series of events according to his plan for the world. Now think about that then. So when you put those two things together, this is most likely then the title deed to the whole earth. And the contents of which include all that God has determined will happen to it in the last days. Make sense? Therefore, think about this then. The implication is whoever possesses this scroll has the power and authority and possesses the fate of the universe in his hands. And so notice then how this scroll is the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Isn't that encouraging? God the Father holds this scroll. The right hand is usually a symbol of strength and power. Beloved, consider this. The title deed to the earth and its fate is securely held in the Father's hand. And he sits On his throne right now. Satan doesn't hold this scroll. Even though Satan has a temporary dominion over the earth. We see that in the rest of scripture. 1 John 5 verse 19. Ephesians 2 verse 2. Even twice in John's own writing in his own gospel. Satan is called the ruler of this world. But he's not the one holding the scroll. Notice how this, also, this scroll is 
not only in the hands of the Father, the one who sits on the throne, but it is sealed seven times over. Now, if you're familiar with numbers and this number seven, as you may have heard before, even from last time, this is the number of completion or perfection. The fact that this title deed is sealed seven times implies the absolute certainty and security of its contents. No one, we could put it this way, no one can tamper with it. There's no changing what God has written. The fate of the earth has already been decided. It has been written. All that is left is for someone to put it into motion. For someone to break its seals and bring on, bring to pass what God has purposed for creation. So the stage is set in this first scene, which brings us to the second scene, which we'll just call the sweeping search. Notice verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? I'll just stop there for a moment. John's gaze on this title deed in the hand of the Father is now interrupted by an imposing creature of formidable size and strength. And if he didn't see him at first, he would have heard him. This, this angel of immense power with a booming voice, and it had to be a strong angel, the text says here, because the question that it calls forth is to be heard in every corner of the known universe. And as some have speculated, this is maybe Gabriel, because Gabriel's name means strength. Others have thought this to be Michael, the archangel, but John doesn't actually give this angel a name here, and it's not one of the four living creatures or any of the 24 elders, or John would have referred to it as such. But notice, though we don't know its name, notice its question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Specifically, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, as we've already seen, if we understand what this scroll signifies, essentially the question is this, who has the divine right and authority and power and worth to make all things right again? To bring to pass what God has planned. This is essentially what the angel is asking. Who's going to do this? Who's up for the task? Who's able to execute and fulfill God's final plan of judgment and redemption upon the earth? Who is worthy to perform, as one writer said, the supreme service of bringing history to its foreordained consummation? Who is worthy for that? Who's worthy to reverse the curse? Who's worthy to fulfill all of what God has promised in all of Scripture? 
It's a heavy question. It's a question posed to us tonight. Who do you think is worthy? Who's worthy for this? It's interesting to me that God puts out such a sweeping search for this one, this worthy one. I mean, doesn't, I mean, you could, you, you could ask here, doesn't he know already what the answer is going to be? Doesn't he know who is worthy? Why is he asking this question? And yet he issues forth this open invitation to all of creation to see if there's anyone who might be able to take this out of my hand, to take this title deed of the earth and bring all of its contents to pass. And though he knows what the answer will be, and it reminds me of Genesis chapter 2, a, a different context, but a, a similar idea here when God takes Adam and he parades all the animals before him just to make the point to him that no one was suitable to be his helper. And the answer is the same here, no one. Does God know who is worthy? Of course he does. But for our benefit, he allows this scene to unfold to make this emphatic declaration and his point. He issues a sweeping search, a search that initially, initially comes up empty. Notice verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. You know, the language here is that all of creation is turned upside down. The search is made from top to bottom, from tip to stern, from head to toe, from heavenly realms to the whole inhabited earth, even down into the underworld, perhaps a reference to where angelic spirits have been imprisoned. And for a moment, all creation is devastatingly silent. Because no one is found worthy for this task. No one has the authority. No one dares to come and claim it. But just consider with me for a moment all who this, this sweeping search included. No one from among the, the great hosts of sinless angels who are there in heaven around the throne who never, n- never had a sinful thought or desire, always did the Father's bidding perfectly, none of them come forward. Not the, living, not the four living creatures, as magnificent as they are as we saw last time, no, no one from among the 24 elders who are present. Not the strong angel himself. None of the redeemed. Think about this. None of the redeemed from among God's people. No human. No human prophet. No human priest. No human king. Not Elijah. Let's just work through all of the names in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Not David. 
Not even Moses, not John the Baptist, none of the apostles, Peter, James, John, not even the great apostle Paul. All are silent. This, this heavenly seed comes to a grinding halt. And what is, what is John's response? John is absolutely devastated. Notice verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John is so devastated, he begins to cry aloud. He's sobbed, to sob uncontrollably. The word here signifies to weep with great intensity. That he can no longer contain himself. His grief cuts through this silence. And the thought that God's redemptive plan, just think about this for a moment. The thought that God's redemptive plan would be put on hold indefinitely. That no one was found who could finally bring an end to the world's suffering and sin causes John, as it would you and I, to crumble in despair. Beloved, you and I can understand this response, can't we? Would things, would, would it ever be right? Lord, how can you allow such evil to prevail? Or perhaps like the psalmist would have cried in ages past, how long? How long, O Lord, will injustice continue? How many broken marriages? Think about your life. Think about your family. How many more deaths of innocent loved ones? How much more bloodshed? How much more disease, deception? How many more people need to die and to go to a Christless eternity? John is beside himself. And this, this seems to be, it seems to be an appropriate response when all hope seems to be lost. Look, if no one can take and open the scroll, how will God win in the end? If no one can take and open the scroll to enact its contents, it doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter how great and glorious God's promises to His people are if no one can bring those things to pass. John is on the edge of despair. But he hears a voice. Notice verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. You see, while John's grief is understandable, here we find out that it was nevertheless, it was inappropriate, or at least premature. 
And with this comforting command, this elder lifts John's head out of his hands and says to him, there is someone. John, you need not cry any longer. There is someone who can end your tears. Dear Christian, sin and death do not have the final say. Aren't you thankful for that? There is one who has overcome. There is one who has overcome them both so as to open the book and its seven seals. Stop weeping, John. There is one who is worthy, the one who has overcome. The Greek word here is where the famous brand Nike gets its name, right? It's a declaration of victory, nikao. Certainly victory in the athletic arena, but here most likely the, the picture is that of a military victory on a battlefield. Who is victorious, triumphant? Who is this conquering one? The one who literally wins. He wins. He has won. He has overcome. Who is he? Look back at verse 5. He's identified by this elder as the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. And you know who this is. I love the Old Testament language. You see, the elder could have just said, Jesus is the one. But he doesn't. He chooses these two messianic designations, you notice, for Christ. One from Genesis chapter 49, verse 9, to the other from Isaiah 11, verse 1. The Lion of Judah is a reference to the Messiah's military strength and might. The Root of David is a reference to his royal lineage. You put those two together in this text, and uniquely this paints a picture of the overcomer as the Messiah who is a conquering warrior king who by his victory over his enemies is now worthy to take this title deed to the earth and open its seals. He has won it in a bloodbath war. It is his. He deserves it. Sweeping search is over. Look, John, the elder says, we have found him. And wiping the tears away from his eyes, John lifts up his head to behold who it is this elder is speaking of. And notice, this brings us to our third scene then. A third, and I saw one that we'll just call the scene of the slain Savior. Notice verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
John looks up and he sees in the middle of the heavenly court before the throne of the one whom this elder is speaking of. And looking at the Lion of Judah, John sees a lamb. In fact, the word here is a form that could even be translated as little lamb. Little lamb. And notice John says this lamb is standing. It it is in the position of life and strength and vigor and victory. It's standing. Even though it looks as if it has been slain. You see, this lamb has the marks on his body of his victory. It was a bloodbath victory, but it was his own blood that he shed. It appears that the victory won by this lamb was a victory won through suffering and death, or as one writer put it, not by sword, but by sacrifice. And now we see it, don't we? All all the Old Testament images just piling up here. Listen, this is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. This is the sacrificial lamb offered for the sins of his people. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And not only does this lamb appear victorious through death, John adds here, look, it has seven horns. What does that mean? Representing its, again, seven, the number of completion and perfection. Seven horns is a complete, perfect, kingly strength and power. That's what horns stand for. Perfect strength and power. Along with seven eyes, notice, signifying its perfect, penetrating vision insight, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. That's what eyes stand for. This one who has overcome is both omnipotent and omniscient. There's nothing this lamb cannot accomplish. There is nothing this lamb cannot see. Nothing that is hidden from his sight. Notice that John identifies the seven eyes here also as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I believe this is a description of the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we've already seen in this book. What John is saying then is, think about this, match this to the Jesus that you know in the Scriptures. John is saying that now this Lamb has conquered sin and death and stands victorious as the slain one, this Spirit has been sent out into the world. Does that sound familiar? It should, because your pastor has been preaching John 16 and 17. makes perfect sense and harmony with what we've already seen in John 16. Jesus told his disciples, listen, unless he goes away, 
the Spirit would not come as their helper. But now John sees the Lamb standing in heaven, and the Spirit has been sent. This is the Christ. This is Jesus, our risen Savior. Beloved, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the warrior king. He is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God who was slain for us, who's risen and victorious over sin and over death. He takes the scroll. Did you love that? John sees Jesus. And what comes next then is perhaps the most anticipated moment in all of Scripture. And and I don't say that lightly, but notice verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I mean, just... it's hard to fathom this, to think of the raw glory of this one verse with me for a moment. For all of redemptive history, it is no overstatement to say that all creation has anticipated this moment since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God first gave the promise to Adam and Eve that one would come who would reverse the curse. That one would come and crush Satan's dominion under his feet and win back the victory that sin had at the fall. Thousands of years of waiting, thousands of years of longing, thousands of searching and hoping. Prophecies, prayers, longings. Fills this one verse. This one act, this one move. With all eyes fixed on Christ, the conquering lamb, in a moment, John watches intently, no longer weeping, as the one human, picture that, a human, the son of man, the son of Adam, walks up to the throne of the ancient of days, takes the scroll from the Father's hand. Can you imagine the profound moment? I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody takes anything out of the Father's hand. I mean, that, that is why John 10, it is such a comfort to us as Christians that, that we hear that hey, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And here, there is no wrestling, there is no resistance, this is not stealing. Jesus does not trick the Father into giving it to him. He's not sneaking around, it's not a magic trick, it's not a mission impossible, replace that with this. He comes and he receives what is rightfully his. Beloved, Jesus is worthy. There's no hesitation, there's no flinch of uncertainty, no waiting for permission, no argument, no interview process. There's no need to present his credentials. He wears them on his body. He is worthy. 
Christ is worthy. Christ is Lord. Christ is the one who will receive an eternal dominion from the Father. Go read Daniel 7. That's your homework. It's the parallel vision to this one. Christ will receive from the ancient of days an eternal dominion. He will reverse the curse. All of history is in his hands. All of history is in his hands. He's Lord over it all. He will do it. He will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. He will bring justice and vindication upon the earth. Does that give you hope, Christian? And just as John had written in John 5, the Father has given all judgment to the sons so that all will honor him as they honor the Father, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's what we see here in this one moment, in this one verse. Paradise is regained. Eden is restored. The Lamb of God will have what is rightfully his. He will have it. God will give it to him. As you can imagine, John must have been overwhelmed with joy, but scarcely can he express it before his own response. It's not even recorded here. His own response is eclipsed by the response of heaven. Look at verses 8 through 10. When he had taken the book, that is, when the Lamb had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Like, like a stadium full of anxious fans watching the final play of a football game. Think about this. As soon, as soon as this heavenly host sees Christ lay hold of the scroll, they break forth in praise and in song. John now notices that each of these heavenly beings, notice, has been holding a, a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I love this imagery. Harps you know, seem, seem to be the chosen in, instrument of worship in Scripture. They most often accompany the act of uh, joyful praise of God's people, but also, this is interesting, they, they, they accompany the act of prophecy as well in the scriptures. So praise and prophecy are accompanied by this instrument. Now, incense was especially tied then to prayer as a pleasing aroma to God as it is here to the prayer of the saints. So think about what John is saying here. Why does he add this now? Why does he mention what these beings 
have in their hands at the throne at this moment. Isn't it encouraging, beloved, to note that the praise, the prophecies, and the prayers of God's people down through the ages from Genesis 3.15 all the way to this moment in history are all here now before the throne of God. Not one of them is missing. He has heard of them all. He has collected them all. They're not wasted. They're not forgotten. Not one cry for God to come quickly has fallen to the ground. They, they all end up here. They're all here. And notice the content of this new song. The angelic hosts proclaim. The question was, who is worthy? Here's the answer. Worthy are you. That they give, that they actually add here some explicit reasons why Jesus is worthy. Notice three of them particularly. Four, here comes the reasons. For you were slain. You were slain. No one before had ever died a death like this. Christ died, but not just any death. He died to satisfy the Father's wrath on behalf of sinners. He was slain. That's why he's worthy. And notice, secondly, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Listen, Christ's death bought you and I if you're in Christ. No one else has done that. Look, if someone else had done that, he would have been worthy. Jesus alone has set us free. He has paid the ransom price and bought us back from the bondage of sin and death. And by the way, he's done this, notice, for every kind of people. There is no, there is no culture, there is no pedigree, there is no nation, there is no kind of people. There is no person that is accepted from this that can say, nope, my way to God is some other Savior. Every kind. And third, third reason he is worthy, you have made them, look at verse 10, to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You know what this language is? This, this is language that harkens back to what God intended for man in the beginning. Look, Jesus has restored us, we could say it this way, to our original relationship with God, what he designed in the garden. That's what this language of a kingdom of priests communicates because the kingdom language is ruling language. He told Adam, exercise dominion, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, that was his job. 
priestly language is service unto God. Adam was to do this in service to God. Adam was God's vice regent on this earth to carry out his purposes. This is what Adam was supposed to be in the first place. He was supposed to exercise dominion and subdue it in service to his creator. Christ restores us to this role. Isn't that sweet? Christian, you have been restored to that role. And only he could do that. Christ is worthy because he has done what no one else could do. Christ is worthy. But there's one final scene here in chapter 5. We've seen the sealed scroll, the sweeping search, the slain Savior. Last, the closing scene. The fourth scene, the scene of the sovereign's song. Now, I understand there has already been a song in verse 9. But notice what happens here now. You know, at this point, you just... We are so used to movies, aren't we? Some media people in here. At this point, we could say, look at the, the, the lens of that camera and that scene widens in John's vision. And notice verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard. Then I saw, same phrase, And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Robert Thomas says accurately here the number of this combined company defies calculation. I mean, some have tried to multiply this and figure out, oh, so square root of three, carry the, what does carry normally say? (laughs) Impossible. And yet, even with this innumerable host, John, notice, uses the singular form of voice here. They are in unison. This is not this is not this is where it's different than that football stadium. They they are in unison. There's not one single objection as they join in this chorus. Just imagine. Imagine being there, John. <laughs> Little John. This is every single angel in heaven, all those who, think about this, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 12, have been longing to look into the work of redemption to see how it all play out. All of those angels. Finally, their anticipation has ended. Their longing has been satisfied. This is their response. There's no holding back anymore. This is... This is like a spiritual dam that has finally burst for thousands of years. Their praise must have flooded 
John's every fiber as it booms forth throughout the universe. And notice what they say. The chorus is, is slightly different than the one in verses 9 and 10, but the declaration is the same. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. Here, however, the connection, notice, is drawn even tighter now between Christ's suffering and death and his exaltation as the worthy one. Notice, just notice how the angels affirm here that Christ was was actually slain in order to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The connection in the language and the grammar here is that actually he was slain for this purpose. This is what his death always had in view. Go and read Isaiah 53 because it begins at the end of chapter 52. It begins with the picture of the exalted, the high and lifted up one whose path then to that exaltation is his death and his suffering. Go and read Philippians chapter 2, where Paul will write this very same thing, that it is because Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, because of that, for that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Notice here also how there are seven things in this list that Christ is worthy to receive. We, we don't have time to talk about all of them or explain all of them, but you get the point. Once again, this indicates the fullness and perfection, right? Seven, this is the last time seven occurs here in this chapter at least. This indicates the fullness and perfection of what Jesus deserves. To him belongs the fullness of perfect power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And as if the chorus couldn't get any bigger, look at verse 13. It's amazing. In every created thing, which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And it doesn't stop there. And on the sea and all things in them. Everything. Every created thing. Everything that has breath. Psalm 150. Everything I heard saying, John says, to him who sits On the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the eternal dominion that is given to the Son that Daniel 7 spoke of. I mean, the sheer magnitude of this scene is unbelievable. You've perhaps heard of how some videos on the internet become so popular so as to break the internet. Listen, if anything could have the capacity to break the universe, it was this scene right here. 
the praise here extends as far and wide as the search was for the one who is worthy. Indeed, even the language is further than that, if at all possible. Commentator Osborne says, every single creature in the cosmos, angels, humans, demons, as well as birds, animals, and fish, how you would have loved to to see that. (laughs) What does the fox, what what sound does the fox make when it's proclaiming the worthiness of Christ? We'll have to wait and see. John knows. (laughs) Notice notice what is added in this last chorus. All creation now sings not only to Christ, but also to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beloved worship in heaven is Trinitarian. And the scene ends in verse 14. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. See, it's come full circle. The vision began with the worship of these creatures in chapter 4. It now ends with their worship here. Amen, as MacArthur points out here, means let it be. Make it happen, Lord. Make it happen. Love, as you read all this, as you listen to all this, I have to ask you this question, and we'll just end here. Does your heart, does your heart say, has it been saying, amen? Amen. Is the response welling up within you from this text, Lord, let it be. Lord, make it happen. Jesus, come and receive what is rightfully yours. Do away, finally, with the effects of sin. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Or is it something else? Dear friend, do you know Christ this evening? He alone is worthy. He alone can right all that is wrong in this world. All the brokenness that you see is answered only in him. He alone is the true hope, the real comfort. He alone can forgive. He alone can cleanse your conscience. He alone can atone for your sins, bring you back to the Father. Beloved, he's overcome what you fear the most. He's conquered sin and death. This Lion of Judah, this Root of David, the Lamb who is slain, who stands victorious, who holds in his hand this title deed of the earth. Stop weeping and look to him who is worthy. Amen.